Welcome to the Criminal Defense Show, where we dive into the exciting world of criminal defense attorneys. I'm your host, Kelly Carpenter. My guest today is Richard Middlebrook. Richard has a thriving DUI practice in Bakersfield, California, Middlebrook and Associates. He is a founding member of the DUI Defense Lawyers Association and a current board member, and he's tried over 250 DUI cases during his 27-year career with a very impressive success rate, I might add. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. We're happy you're here. I'm glad to be here. Good. We want to get to know you a little bit better. What can you tell us about your practice and how you got started as a lawyer? Sure. Practice is exclusive to DUI defense. All we do is focus on those accused of driving under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or a combination of both. There are some obvious uh, issues that come along with that in other areas of criminal practice, for instance, driving on a suspended license or things like that. We handle everything from a first time driving under the influence situation all the way through to and including DUI murder cases as second degree murder. Got started as a lawyer 27 years ago. Went to the University of California Davis School of Law. Before that, I did my college degree at a little Lutheran college in Thousand Oaks, California. Once I graduated, came down to Bakersfield, started with the DA's office here, um, and eventually went out on my own in 1995. Nice. What was it that drew you to the practice of criminal law specifically? I had a prosecutorial mentality. I wanted to prosecute cases. I liked the control that was given to prosecutors to do the right thing. Unfortunately, extraordinarily quickly, I found out most prosecutors didn't do the right thing. Even though they were given incredible powers, there was such political pressure for convictions within the departments. There was such overwhelming pressures for DAs to win cases as opposed to what I learned from my practice in Yolo County as a, as a law clerk at the Yolo County DA's office, where it really was emphasized at that stage that you were given a great deal of power. It's sort of the Spider-Man quote, uh, those who are given much power have the responsibility to use it wisely type idea. And so I really wanted to make sure that we did that. But within the confines of the DA's offices throughout the state, you weren't really given that option. And so I kind of ran into the problem that how do I do the right thing if I'm not allowed to do the right thing? I couldn't dismiss cases that I wanted to dismiss that didn't have the quality to convict, but I was being pressured to take those cases to trial. And so what I figured out was the way to help people and do the right thing was to go to the other side. So I opened up my practice, but I never really was very good at taking on the hard stuff, the difficult rape, murder, it just might wasn't in it. Um, not that I don't believe that they absolutely deserve a defense. It's just I knew I wasn't the person to do that. I really like the scientific area behind uh, driving under the influence cases. So what drew me there really was the opportunity to use my background in science, uh, my interest in science to defend those accused of driving under the influence. As a result of that, it ended up that I found out that most lawyers consider driving under the influence defense the hardest area of practice in defending DUI cases. And so that was awesome. I love the Spider-Man quote. I think it was about with great power comes great responsibility. Something That's like exactly that. it. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, these are people's lives on the line. So there's a lot at stake. Got to take care of these people. It is. And most, for the most part, driving under the influence is to a large degree, pretty good people making 
maybe a, a choice that would be extraordinary. I always heard that, you know, in family law cases, when you're going through a divorce, it's always the, the participants and a little bit different from criminal cases. In criminal cases, you had defendants who were trying to make themselves look their best in court. And in family law cases, it was it was the participants trying to make themselves the worst. But I didn't find it too difficult because most of my clients are very good people. Richard, can you describe for me the size and scope of your law practice? Like how many attorneys you have, paralegals, just the size generally of, of the firm? Sure, we have three attorneys and we have three paralegals, two legal assistants, an office administrator, and a receptionist and runner. Okay, so decent size. You've got some moving parts there. What are you typically responsible for as far as the day-to-day operations? I direct the attorneys in their work and assist them in producing the best results for our clients. We work as a team overall and everything. We treat each case as all of our cases. So we don't have particular attorneys assigned to particular cases. They're all inevitably my case with the attorneys assisting and the paralegals assisting us. I do have direction over the administration portion of it as well, dealing with client concerns or questions. Uh, I meet with clients on a daily basis, negotiations. I basically do all the things you would expect of an attorney in a law practice, in addition to the management of the staff and personnel. Okay. And how do you prioritize your, your time and responsibilities? Like, do you have any processes or systems that work really well for you? There's some things that we do. We have a weekly meeting with the entire staff and attorney group. We meet every week to go through issues, concerns, new processes, procedures, what's working, what's not working, what can we improve. We have a meeting once a week with just the attorneys to go over new case law issues that are happening in the courtrooms that we that we're appearing in. We'll look at, for instance, what's working with particular DAs. Are there new judges coming in? Are there changes in policies and procedures within each of the courthouses that are going to affect our ability to do our job? Um, So each of those things are things we'll meet with. Those two are, are generally speaking, the most important parts of our week. It allows us to make slight course corrections within the week as opposed opposed to doing enormous fixes later on. I think that's so smart. Yeah. Deal with things more proactively than wait for everything to pile up and then have a really big headache to deal with. I think that's great. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to be putting out fires too often. I mean, it does happen. Don't get me wrong. I think there's very few practices on earth that don't have the fires. We try to eliminate them, anticipate where they might be cropping up, gauge our clients, try to use a system that is accessible to our clients so that the minute that they're starting to feel any anxiety, questions, concerns, issues, that we can address those straight away. We try to do a a bottom-up approach to everything, which is to have the most accessible personnel available to clients as we go along to make sure that their questions, for instance, if if I'm in court all day long, uh, but a paralegal is able to answer the question, we want a paralegal to be able to answer that question as opposed to waiting for an attorney who may be at a trial for four to five, six, seven days, six weeks at times to get back to them. We want to make sure everybody sees those questions early on and the first one to get to it who can answer it will do it. That's good. I'm sure your clients feel the, the difference there. I mean, it helps the attorneys because they, they can focus on the trial or whatever it is that they're having to deal with. And then the clients are obviously feeling the care from the team in the meantime. So I think that's a great way to kind of balance things out there. 
one of the other things that we do is we we try to reach out. My approach to to dealing specifically with DUI clients is this: I treat my DUI clients essentially like I treat my CPA. I pay my CPA a lot of money to handle problems for me. I expect him to be handling it, and for him to contact me if there's a problem he can't handle, or he needs my input on something. Otherwise, I don't want to hear from him. I don't want to get a message that my CPA is on the phone. That's not a good idea. And so I try to treat my clients the same way. I don't want to bother them until there's a reason to bother them. So my philosophy is contact me whenever you have a question, reach out to me if you have a concern, but I'm not going to call you on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis, just to say everything's exactly like it was our last conversation. When things start to move forward, we have a process early on that we explain to them that this is going to take six to nine months to resolve. It's going to take some time. We just, we, we spend a great deal of time speaking to them about what to expect so that they don't have to worry about it. I think that's probably the biggest problem clients run into is they don't know what's happening. Most have never been through this process before. Even if they have, they rarely had a private attorney to deal with it. They've oftentimes, maybe if they've had prior DUIs, will have gone in and just pled guilty. They don't know what to do. And I think it's the lack of knowledge, the lack of anticipation that causes anxiety. So if we can stop them from being anxious, they can stop from making us anxious uh, with emergency phone calls. Yeah, it's a, it's a circle of life with the anxious, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Well, thinking back at the history of your law practice and from where it started to where you are now, what are some challenges that you've overcome to help grow the practice or you know get it to where it is today? I think probably one of the most difficult things was to decide to do just DUI defense. When I came out in my practice early on from the DA's office, I had had basically two different experiences. One was criminal prosecution. The other was back in 1994, the district attorney's office locally handled the prosecution and collection of child support matters for the state and for people who were owed child support. And so I had done both areas. I did child support enforcement and I had done criminal prosecution. When I came out, I didn't really intend to be in my own business. I had been hired by the FBI as an investigator for the FBI. I had a date for Quantico to do my training. It was six months out to do it. And I kind of didn't have any job. I kind of left abruptly and didn't have any job between leaving and going to Quantico six months later. So I thought, well, what do I do for six months? I certainly had to have an income. So I decided, well, I'll take a few cases here and there. And when I started to take a few cases, I did so in family law and criminal defense, which were the only two areas that I felt like I knew well enough to do on my own without any supervision. Well, in the first three months, I realized I was making a great deal more income than I would ever make being an employee of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And I also realized that most of the people, I had this idea, it was right around, if you'll remember, well, you're too young for it, but back in 1990 is when Silence of the Lambs came out. And you had the Clarice Starling as the young FBI investigator taken out of Quantico to chase serial killers. And my naivete was that I would be chasing serial killers within a few years. I wasn't silly enough to think I would chase them right out of Quantico, but I thought within a few years. Um, What I realized during my background investigations for the Federal Bureau of Investigations was there were 17 people investigating my background to get me into Quantico. They were going back to when I was a bagger at Ralph's Grocery Store in San Diego to find out whether I was a communist. (laughs) And I realized 
fairly quickly that that was what I was going to be doing for the first 20 years of my career was doing other people's background investigations that I wasn't going to be picking up the John Gotti's of the world. And between that and the income levels that were being generated fairly quickly, I decided to do both of those. So the biggest challenge that I ended up facing was I started doing family law and criminal defense at first generally, although my focus was always really primarily on DUI. But probably 10 years went by before I could really say, one, I always hated family law. It was the worst area of practice you could ever imagine. Everybody hates you. The other attorneys hate you. The other side hates you. Your clients hate you. They're paying you money to get half of their stuff if they get everything right. And I just was a guy that really needed to be liked. And I couldn't stand that everybody else hated me. So I tried to get out of that as quickly as possible, but I didn't know how. So I met with an incredible business consultant who came in and I always was a little embarrassed about admitting that I needed help, but I, but I was trained to be a lawyer. I wasn't trained to be a businessman. And so she came in and met with me and she asked me just a simple question. She just simply said, what would you do in the practice of law if you could? And I said, Well, I'd get rid of any other criminal areas because I don't want to do any other criminal area. I would get rid of family law. I'd just do DUI. And she said, well, why haven't you done that? And I said, well, there's a lot of reasons. I'll make half my money out of family law. I painted myself into a corner. How am I supposed to support my staff and my family taking a 50% cut? She said, well, why would you have to take a 50% cut? I said, well, that's half my practice. And I said, so she just made a simple suggestion. She said, why don't you just stop taking family law cases and just take DUI cases? And they'll just naturally fade away. And I said, well, yeah, but what happens if I only get this many DUI cases? And we explored a little bit about how many attorneys in the state of California actually only practice DUI defense. And what it came down to was about 15. And sort of very few out of the hundreds of thousands of lawyers that were practicing in California, only about 15 exclusively did DUI defense. And she said, you're in a pretty small company. You're not really competing against thousands of lawyers for this business. And if you can make yourself stand out by really specializing in an area, as opposed to being a practitioner of all areas of criminal defense, do you think maybe that would improve your opportunities? And I said, I don't know. What do you think? And she said, I think it will. And she was right. By giving up the idea of being a jack of all trade, master of none, I became extraordinarily successful. My practice doubled within the first six months after stopping family law. I became well-known in the area of DUI defense. One of the, probably the biggest hurdle that you mentioned in doing that was I never really felt like a family law lawyer. I always felt like I was an imposter, right? Because I would practice DUI work as well. And I never really felt like a criminal lawyer because I was also doing family law. So I was an imposter in both areas and I always felt that way. So I wouldn't get the kind of training I needed. I wasn't going to the meetings and really getting the seminars that I needed to keep improving in both areas. So I was very mediocre at both and didn't really excel because I felt like, well, if I excel at DUI, then am I really even more of an imposter in family law? And the exact opposite was true as if I excelled in family law, would I be an imposter in driving under the influence cases? So once I picked one, it was the greatest thing ever for my practice. It changed my fortunes completely. I went from, in the end, it quadrupled my income. So I was very happy with it. That's a really powerful story. And there's so many attorneys out there who are nervous to get more specific and to hone in on one practice area. But your story is a case in point why you should really explore that idea. And also, 
your mental health. Like you like handling DUI cases. You don't have to deal with the BS of the family law circle that you weren't into. So there's a benefit that way as well. Just, you know, what do you like doing and how can you make that work in your practice? And that was the best assessment that I was asked to do, which what do you want to do? No one had ever asked me, what did I want to do? I mean, they ask you that when you're a kid, right? They ask you, like, and you say astronaut, and, or I want to be on television, or I want to, you know, I want to be an actor, whatever that is. They ask you, they stop asking me that right about post high school. And now it's not what you want to do, it's what you have to do to survive. What are you going to do to make income? Even parents will say, well, that's nice. You, It's nice that you want to do something like be an artist or you want to be a singer, but how are you really going to make a living? And so you tend to focus on those things. And what I didn't realize was that so many of the other ideas in my life were making me miserable. I was miserable about the area of practice I was in. I was miserable having to go to work every day. And that was absolutely permeating every single area of my practice. I would meet with clients and it would just the sense of dread on taking a new family law case was there. And a lot of people wouldn't hire me as a result of that. And so it was affecting my hiring rates. I wasn't doing any advertising at all. I was doing no, I mean, back at that time, there was no Google or there was no search engines. Web design was absolutely irrelevant in the nineties. I mean, if you had a one page that gave them your address and phone number, that was about all that web design was at that time if it was even that i can't even remember i don't even think a website i remember getting a website but not until much later on but when you're going through that process it just kind of permeates who you are as a human being and i wasn't as great of a father i didn't have the time and now that i love doing what i do and i work around people who love doing this and we really feel passionate about what we do and helping our clients get the best results possible those kind of things really make a difference in my life and it makes me happy. So now I practice probably nine months a year and travel three months at least a year. That's great. Where do you love to travel to? Everywhere. Probably, I've been going west mostly now. So I've been to Bora Bora probably 10 times. Bali, Bali is beautiful. Thailand is gorgeous. I had a trip pre-COVID planned to Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, that's on hold for right now until they reopen. I just got back from the, it's called Tetiaroa, which is an island right off of Tahiti that is, uh, it was originally owned by Marlon Brando. That was wonderful. I spent a lot of time in Cabo. I have some business interests there as well. So I spent a lot of time there. Well, I'm curious with you being a DUI focused practice, have you seen any effect from the popularity of all the Ubers and Lyfts and, you know, the rideshare programs? Yeah, it's a question I actually get a lot. And I would say, yes, I think it affects a lot of the more populous areas, the Los Angeles the San Francisco's, the San Diego's, where you have a great deal of drivers. It's a little less prevalent where I'm from. So in Bakersfield, I'm kind of blessed in my practice, and it was completely accidental and I didn't realize it, that I am unique in the Central Valley. One, most Los Angeles lawyers don't want to travel up north to Bakersfield, so I don't compete with them, or rarely do. We're separated from the north to Fresno, which is a two-hour drive, and most Fresno lawyers, even though there aren't that many, don't want to come south. To the west, you don't see anybody until Santa Barbara or San Luis Obispo, and there's nobody to the east. So we are kind of in a bubble in the legal practice areas to begin with, but specifically in uh, the areas of driving under the influence. Bakersfield itself is also very spread out. It, it looks, if you drive it north to south, it doesn't seem that large. It's now about 15 miles north to south, but it's about 45 miles east to west. So 
it's very spread out. There's no central district. There's no central socializing district. You're not going to downtown where all the bars and things are. So it's very costly to use Uber here or Lyft. There are very few drivers here. So you might on a Friday or Saturday night have five or six total drivers for the entire county, which can make wait times 45 to 60 minutes. So unfortunately, until they pick up and are able to service the area a little bit better, um, I haven't seen a lot of effects. The other problem is, is really inherently the way alcohol works on the body. And what you'll notice if you ever had any experience with alcohol is, is that if you have two or three drinks, you're like, Whoa, I can feel that I should not be driving. Yeah. I'm not going to drive tonight. I will not be going home. But when you have six or seven drinks, that feeling goes away. And now you feel like you're perfectly in control, even though you doubled your capacity. It's the way that alcohol works in the mind to make you believe that you're in better shape than you are. That's why people end up dancing on bar tops and thinking they're way funnier, better dancers than they actually are. It takes away those inhibitions, including the inhibitions to get arrested for driving under the influence. Now, of course, there's a huge downside like that. I don't want to make light of the error of practice. There have been some tremendous, tremendous injuries and deaths as a result of driving under the influence, and I don't take that lightly. I will be very happy with the day that it comes when that is no longer an issue in our society. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, on the other hand, counties statewide, it actually isn't nearly as many as you would you would think, given the advertising associated with it. That really has affected, and, and probably happily so, more of my business area than anything else. People, you know, you have the drink, drive, go to jail, the ideas of they're watching, and these advertising campaigns in which the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is spending hundreds of millions of dollars across the United States to tell people not to drink and drive. What's interesting is they don't tell anybody else in any other crime not to do the crime. You don't see an advertising campaign for don't rape your neighbor, don't molest your children. When you get in a fight, walk away, don't pull a gun. But that area alone has happened. And I think that's had a great deal of effect. The problem is it really hasn't affected the people who are driving under the influence. Who it's affected is the jurors in those cases. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to affect the juries, to convict, to make it you think, for instance, drink, drive, go to jail is really the way it works. Well, that's not the way it works. You're perfectly legal in every single state, except for Utah currently, to have a drink, get behind the wheel of your car and drive. It's not illegal to do that. You just can't be under the influence of alcohol, so you can't operate a motor vehicle like a sober person or be above a certain level. But they change the, the law and make because that's much catchier. Drink, drive, go to jail is much catchier than drink, drink enough to get under the influence, <laughs> drive, be stopped, then if you appear that way, then go to jail. It's not a very catchy slogan. So that's really affected me more than Uber or Lyft. Yeah, it definitely doesn't have the same marketing appeal. The longer, right? <laughs> the longer more accurate version of it, huh? Well, looking back, you know, at all the things you've learned throughout the years, what are some things you know now that you really wish you had known in the beginning? Oh, if I could go back and have a little conversation with myself back at the beginning of my practice, I think I probably would. There are certain things that I knew back then that I that have really been more emphasized now and some things that I didn't know at all that I've learned. I'd say things like the old adages about it takes you a lifetime to build up a reputation and a minute to lose it. That is absolutely true. And I've seen a lot of good lawyers forget that and lose their practices and their livelihoods as a result of that, making one or two bad decisions that they thought 
were okay in the in the vacuum and they weren't. I was very proud of the fact that I've really tried to run an extraordinarily ethical practice um, that I really look out for my clients. To remind myself that clients really are the backbone of the business and the fact that serving them is the only reason we are here. And I remind my staff, we are very lucky that people believe in us regardless of how they may have heard of my reputation. They may have heard about the win results. They may have heard about the number of cases I've handled. They may have read some things on, on the webpage or in, in videos I've done or talks I've done, but I'm always feel very grateful because they could have gone anywhere and spent their money anywhere. And they believed in us enough to spend a lot more than a lot of other attorneys charge because we work a lot harder than most attorneys work to get the results that we get. And I would have reminded myself that remember why you do this. It's, you know, the side perks of it. It's great that I can travel. And I'm very lucky that after 27 years, I don't have to work as hard as I did uh, during the first things that I've learned is, is don't ever burn your bridges with a DA. They tend to stick around a long time and you burn your bridge and it's burnt forever. But I would also remind myself that standing up for what you believe and for a good case really carries you a lot farther than kowtowing. I really believe that some of my greatest, my greatest moves forward in my business and my personal life has been because I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about what was going to happen as a result of it, but that I stood up for my client, sometimes going to trial at great deal of personal expense and time for me, pissing off DAs to do it, but winning the case. And inevitably that ended up being some great results. I can give you two examples of that recently. So I had a, and then actually go together. Last year, I had a very long DUI murder case. It involved a fetus and was not going to be very popular trial. My client was alleged to have caused an accident with a young woman who had then lost a four-month-old fetus. And as a result, he was charged with second-degree murder. Everyone warned me, do not go to trial in this case. Find out a resolution. Try to figure out something. No jury is going to be able to deal with that. It's just not, it's not the same as just killing a human being. And there's going to be too much sympathy, but my client wasn't guilty of it. And I knew he wasn't guilty of it. Not only was he not under the influence of alcohol, he also was not the one responsible for the death of the fetus. After the accident, unfortunately, the husband, having seen way too many movies involving car crashes, thought his car was going to blow up. So he drug his wife out of the car, slamming her to the ground. That's what ended up causing the rupture of the uh, amniotic sac. And so the DA had brought in all their top guns, they literally brought in the best expert in the entire world on alcohol and the use of marijuana simultaneously. And we had a six-week jury trial during that. We stood up and we got a great result in the end. We hung the jury on it and ended up resolving the case for much lower levels with much lower punishments. Than, and it was a fair, it was fair. My client was punished for the limited things he did, but he wasn't punished for all the allegations. And in doing that, there was a second part of it that this was the risk part. I had to miss about six weeks of my regular office practice. Because of that, we had DMV hearings that were not being able to go forward. So when you get a DUI, you have your criminal portion. You also have your departmental motor vehicles hearings. Well, the departmental motor vehicles had taken a position here locally that they were not going to grant continuances for hearings any longer, which was a violation of the law and pretty much every practice they had been in for 25 years. Because I was in trial, I couldn't do those DMV hearings. And as a result of that, 78 clients of mine had hearings without me present and had their driver's license taken. 
that cost them their life, their livelihoods, sometimes their marriages. One, literally their life, he killed himself as a result of it because he lost his career. And so we appealed all those decisions, but those appeals came at my cost. And we spent just about $600,000 in attorney's fees and time out of pocket to make sure we did the right thing for our clients. We We weren't at fault for missing the hearings, but because of the way they were handling it, I felt responsible for fixing it. And so we did that. We won a great deal of those back, got some pretty good results. And in, in fact, in December, I'm speaking with regard to those hearings. They're currently up at the Fifth District Court of Appeal. The Department of Motor Vehicles is appealing all of my wins. So we're going to be up there at that. And they don't want to pay me. The court had awarded attorney's fees in those as well. So we were looking at probably around $400,000 being returned to the clients and us as a result. California didn't like that one. But it ended up being the right thing to do. That's very good. And I think that that says a lot about you. Like you don't have to do those things, but you have an ethical obligation with yourself. You know, like you have a high standard that you hold yourself to. Um, that was one of the problems is, is that the cost of appealing these cases on almost every single one of them was more than what my clients had paid me. And so not only had I done their criminal cases for free, essentially, I had also done their DMV portion of it for free. Most of those cases cost significantly more than I was paid, but that didn't matter. What mattered was they trusted me and I needed to honor that trust and I needed to do everything humanly possible to fix the problems caused, even though they weren't my fault, but they certainly were not my client's fault. And so that just had to happen that way. Yeah, you made it right. That's all that matters at the end of the day. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned it earlier regarding the science of DUI. It's obviously a scientific practice area. You've got to know the science behind it and how to interpret it and analyze it. And I, I think you have the only lawyer scientist in your county on your staff. Is that correct? There are only seven lawyer scientists in the state of California. And that's a designation based on a great deal of classes taken regarding both breath and blood alcohol, as as well as drug DUI cases and all the science behind them. And there's probably about 500 hours worth of time being put into to that designation. There are two here, but seven throughout the state. The other one that he is here, though, doesn't really practice very much. And he worked for me at the time that he got the designation. And so we were partners at the time, but had since split. So we were the only firm at that point. But at this point, there's two in the county, but seven throughout the state. And yeah, the science is absolutely, it's the only thing that gets you to a win. DUI is very interesting. It's the only crime that you're convicted of by a box, by a number. Right. No mechanical device. Nobody convicts you of any. You're not convicted of burglary by a machine. Um, If someone sees you breaking into a house, they they're in the house. They see you. They identify you in court and say, that's the person who broke through the window and was rifling through my jewelry drawer. It's always a personal you you have even down to speeding. It's an officer who's watching you who can who can start and confirm the radar, but the radar itself isn't even taken. It has to be the officer's opinion that really matters. But in DUI, it's very different. You are convicted because a machine says you are above a certain level, at least a one part of the DUI. And knowing how those machines work, knowing uh, the biology and physiology behind driving under the influence, how alcohol is processed through the system, what the weaknesses, and, and there are some very good ways to test alcohol, some great ways to test alcohol in a body. 
We just don't do it because they're too expensive and time consuming. So we kind of find the shortest, easiest way to do that. Like for instance, breath testing, horrible way to test alcohol in the blood. We don't really care what's in the breath. That's irrelevant, right? It, because literally you take a bottle of whiskey, put it in your mouth, swish it around, spit it out, blow in a breathalyzer, and it's off the charts, although you have nothing in your blood that's affecting your brain. We care what's in your blood because that's what goes to your brain, and that's what affects your ability to make good decisions and stop you from dancing on tables. So if you don't know the processes and how that works, you can be confused as a lawyer as to... The breath samples. And one of the difficult parts in, in defending DUI cases is the prosecution have their own experts. They have the Department of Justice, they have their own local labs, they have their own local employees. And so those people come in and say, well, what we do is great. It's fantastic. It's spectacular. We couldn't do it any better. But most of these people have bachelors of arts degrees, sometimes bachelor of science. One of our local techs has a bachelor of science in geology is what qualifies them as an expert. Um, I don't know how rocks and biology and chemistry go together, but that's what they use to testify. But they're taught very limited aspects of it. So one of the things of being a lawyer sentences, for the most part, we have at least 10 times more training in the area of blood alcohol than the lab techs who are coming in to testify. So if you know more than they do, and by now it's pretty well out that we do, they don't try to talk around you. They don't try to talk over you. They don't try to, to fool you with big scientific words in court that sound really good, but don't really mean anything. When you can tear that apart and bring it down to its base elements, and not only that, but explain it to a jury, what do these things mean? How does alcohol really affect you? What are you going to see and when are you going to see it? You're hopefully able to hold the state, the counties, the labs accountable for what they do. Example of that. So, for instance, in Tulare County, there was a lab there called Mineral King Labs. And Mineral King Labs was, in my opinion, one of the worst labs in the entire world. They were using the oldest technology to test blood. They had a problem in their sampling systems, which we've been pointing out for years in winning cases. Not once did they try to fix that until... They had an officer-involved shooting of a suspect. They, their policy was to test for blood samples for alcohol and drugs right after the officers to make sure they weren't on drugs or alcohol. Well, one of their officers came up off the charts for methamphetamines who had been involved in the shooting. That was the first time that anybody outside of the defense community, outside of people like myself and Terry Wapner out of Fresno, had ever even recognized that as a problem. What had happened was he wasn't high on methamphetamines at the time, but their sampling system would change the vials. It would pick the wrong vials and put it through. So you never knew, you know, you would have clients who came up positive for PCP who had no signs of being under the influence of PCP because the wrong vial was chosen. We would have to do DNA testing. Shortly thereafter, they ended up bankrupting and closing down, but they're now reopened again. But those kind of things can really affect you in the long run. But it's important to know the science or else you can't make head nor tail of what they give you. You can ask for all the documents, but if you can't read them, it doesn't matter. So true. I want to talk a little bit about community involvement because I think you're fairly involved in your local community. So what sorts of things do you, do you guys do? So we're, we try to be involved in all aspects of the community. I think that's super important whenever, and I've been involved in 
and service since a very young age. I was helped when I was a kid. I grew up in a low-income housing project in San Diego. My mother, although she worked her tail off, wasn't making a whole lot of money running a uh, medical practice at that time. In fact, I ran across her tax returns for the year I graduated high school, and she was making $8,000 a year working full-time. How she supported three children alone through that is beyond me, but she was able to do it. So I didn't have a father who was regularly involved in my life, so I was involved with the Big Brothers uh, Big Sisters program, and I had a big brother who was involved, and he didn't have to do that, but he really changed my life. So he gave me hope that he showed me, even though... You know, he wasn't a doctor or a lawyer. He was a route driver for Orwee Bread Company. But he took his days out. He didn't have children of his own. Uh, and he took his days and weekends out to show me a different life than growing up in really what was a pretty much the hood. It's hard to say hood in San Diego at the same time, but there are areas. So, and, uh, right. So when I got to college, I started getting involved and I got tricked into being involved in a group, which was called Rotaract, which is the college organization of Rotary. And, uh, got tricked into that, got involved in that early on by a professor of mine. And we were able to do that. And then, and I left law school, I came down to Bakersfield, got involved with Rotary briefly, but I was a little on the young side to be involved in Rotary at that time. I was a little too single and ready to live life. And I was involved with Rotary, which had a lot of guys in their 70s and 80s. And they had finally decided to finally let in women right around then. <laughs> so we were starting to get younger people involved. And so I just wasn't completely involved at that point, but I got involved with an organization called Active 2030, which was basically Rotary for Young People that helped children's organizations throughout the world. They had a pretty significant influence earlier in the 20th century, but had since sort of restricted their involvement. There was maybe 40 or 50 clubs in, in that point in the United States. There weren't a ton, but I eventually became national and international president of that organization. Over 10 years that I was involved in it, I aged out at 40, looked for a different way to contribute. And that now is through Rotary and I contribute through Rotary. I also am involved in charitable giving and gifting in, in pretty much every aspect from FFA to fun runs. I try to donate as much as I can. I don't do it for publicity. I don't think it's kind of hard to advertise your driving under the influence practice at a school, you know, bake off or cake the fawn or, you know, you just kind of keep that quiet. But we, we try to donate money and be a good influence and volunteer where we can to help out serving homeless down at the community shelter. We do a trip there every year to bring the whole staff down to help out and remind them how lucky we are. And so we try to do those types of things. Well, and they're good for the community. And I think there are also opportunities to just network and get to know people and brand your law firm. Because in a roundabout way, the more people in your local area who know who you are, they know that you exist, they know what you're about, that all comes back in the long run. It just does. We've covered a lot of ground today. Obviously, you've talked about so many important things. Is there any other advice that you want to give to listeners just based on your experience, based on what you know, anything along those lines? Sure. I would tell other lawyers, I mean, obviously the podcast is focused on lawyers and not the end users, for instance. I think one of the things that's happened and some things that I've seen of young lawyers that I try to correct when I get a chance to is with the advent of the internet and with marketing and the, um, you know, when I got involved, the only thing available was phone book advertising. And it's, it's basically how big of an ad could you, could you, I mean, and, and to some degree that's also happens with the internet, right? And it's really easy. And I've seen lots of firms pop up and fail very quickly because they forget that it's really easy 
to advertise that you're the best in the world and you're super good at what you do and you're number one. And it, you can fluff and say all that stuff. Got to put the work in behind it. You got to earn that stuff. Don't say things that aren't true because eventually it will come out. It will show that you aren't all you're advertising to be. There's nothing wrong with getting your message out and getting your brand out. That's absolutely important. And in this day and age, it's even more important to establish the brand and to let people know who you are in the same breath. You can't just fluff. You just can't say you're the best DUI attorney in the county and then not be it. And, and just be very average. I know of a number of examples where I've seen, and I've seen them come and I've seen them go, where they were the best DUI attorneys, billboards all over counties. You know, I never even heard of them. Never seen them in court. Never saw them try a single case. Never once get a verdict. In fact, the reality was they had never tried a case at all. They'd never fought for their clients. They had never tried one single case. People find out about that pretty quick. It's not hard to figure out. And so basically, put your money where your mouth is, right? Get your word out, but be good. Don't forget that just because you can say you're great, it still means you have to be great. You have to do great things. You can't just rely on the fact that you say you're awesome. If you have a product, I mean, you see those in, in advertising all the time now. You know, I get all these ads on Instagram and Facebook for these products all over. And, and you don't really know where they're coming from. You don't know a history about them. You don't know where they're showing up from. But the other day, I, I saw these great advertisements for a trash can. It was a compression trash can that would allow you basically to physically compress trash like a trash compactor, but not having the mechanical efforts. So you just tamp it down. It was this automatic thing. It was really easy. It looked so great. I was like, that is fantastic. I'm going to buy two of those, one for the bathroom and one for the kitchen. And it shows up and it was exactly as advertised. But in miniature, they looked like they were, when they were next to somebody on the advertising, they looked like they were about three feet tall. When they showed up, they were about this big. Oh, they were no. about eight inches tall and about six inches around. And I was like, what the hell am I going to, what do you need to compact in there? And so that now is gone. It's off the market. The company is shut down. They probably sold a ton of those really fast. The difference is, is that they can go in and market something else. They can just change it. But as a lawyer, you can't. You're marketing you. And that's all you have. And if you lose who you are, there's no way to recreate you. There's not. And that's something you can't get back. It's really hard to backpedal when that happens. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, your marketing needs to be authentic to you. And you've got to back it up with action. You've got, you know, you've got to stand true to what you say. That's just the way to do it. It is. I think there are a lot of lawyers, and I see this a lot now, who have relied solely on the marketing of themselves as opposed to the marketing of their successes. Mm. And you gotta, you gotta do good things. Tell everybody about the good things you're doing, but you gotta do good things. You can't just say you're doing good things. Because people will uncover that. They will find out that you're not who you say you are. And that moves very quickly. That's why, you know, online reputation is such a challenge now. I mean, that's one of the things I think is going to be probably the most up and coming way of dealing with this. And there's companies that are popping up just to deal with online reputation issues. It's very difficult because if somebody likes you, they'll tell one or two people, but if they don't, they'll tell everybody is also true. And, you know, it's very hard to distinguish on sites such as, you know, Avo or Yelp and places like that. You know, if you have 50 good reviews, everybody wants to see the bad one. They want to see the, oh, well, this seems to represent, and you can scream and yell and say, look at all the great ones. 
but that one bad one always ends up becoming the problem. And so ultimately, as long as you're true to yourself, you can't stop people from saying things. And I, and I think those commercials, and I forget who it's even for, that's probably awful that, you know, people are putting a lot of money into the advertising and you don't remember the product, but you remember the commercial. Right. <laughs> but they have this whole commercial about, I hear it on the radio all the time of people complaining about all these like great things that somebody did for them, but they just want to complain. But it's like, there's something about a floral shop and, and he doesn't sell any plastic flowers. All he sells is fresh ones and they're just beautiful and fresh, but Oh my God, I wanted a plastic, I wanted a plastic bouquet and he didn't sell any of those at his fresh floral shop. And it's kind of like that. And you will have those people. But if you're true to yourself and you're doing good work and you're doing good things, there'll always be enough good people to say good things about you. I, you know, you got to build your reputation first and then tell everybody about it. For sure. And you're right. You know, when you're looking for any business, whether it's a lawyer or a salon or a restaurant, you are looking for the bad reviews. The good ones you are like, okay, that's good. That's good. But you are looking for the bad ones and a pro tip. And I don't know if you guys do this, but anytime you do get a bad review, responding to it is so important, not because you're responding to that person and talking to them, you're talking to your whole entire audience and they're right. measuring you based on how you reply. And sometimes you can even turn a negative into a positive with the way that you interact with that person and what you say. Couldn't agree more. There's uh, in fact, there was a hotel down in Costa Rica that I hadn't read the reviews on until I got there. And it ended up being very indicative. The hotel would take these negative reviews and they would just berate the reviewer, um, really lash out and say, well, if it wasn't you and your boyfriend screaming at all hours of the night with each other, we wouldn't have had to come and ask you to quiet down. And I mean, really like disclose like some personal information and really attack them as individuals. I probably wouldn't have stayed there had I known, you know, and read them in advance, but that really affects how people see you. And, and I've been, you know, luckily the few negative reviews I've seen in my career, um, I've been lucky enough. They look a little crazy. So I just say, you know, I'm, and it's true. I'm, I'm terribly sorry that anybody has ever had a negative experience, whether it's my fault, their fault, an outside agency fault that I, I don't want anybody. I, I wish I could win every single case, get everybody off scot-free that I could charge them nothing to do it. And we could all live in a utopia that just really doesn't happen. And, and part of what I try to do is manage expectations. And that's probably the last thing I would tell you about, you know, other things, managing your clients' expectations are extremely important. Unfortunately, a lot of attorneys want to promise the world. They want to tell everybody it's going to, you know, I'm going to win this case. You're going to get a dismissal. You're going to walk away scot-free. This is going to be awesome and wonderful. And then when they do anything short of that, they failed their client, at least in their client's eyes. And so it's really important to explain upfront. There's a lot of people involved, especially in a criminal practice. There are DAs, there's judges, there's probation department workers, there's police officers, all of which have a say in it. And if you can't make them understand that they're not paying you as a bribe, you're not taking half the money they pay you and handing it to the DA for a dismissal. This is about experience, time, effort, energy, knowledge, background, training to try to get the results you want. It's, I kind of liken it and I have every conversation with a new client. I say, listen, think of this as you're going to a doctor and you've been, you've received a diagnosis that you have a cancer. You want to get better. I want you to get better. We both want it. And I'm going to do everything I can to do that, but not everybody walks out of the other end of it healthy and happy and gets to stick around. 
Some come out with some other problems, but maybe the cancer is gone. Some don't survive it. Some some come out and they're completely cured of, uh, and in remission. So we all want the same thing, but you're not paying a doctor for a cure. You're paying the doctor to do everything they can to find the cure for you. And with that, most people get that up front. As long as you're honest with them and up front and you don't try to play Superman where you're going to save the day and, and are realistic about what they should expect and what, what's fair to expect, they honor that. Absolutely. Yeah. Managing expectations, super, super important. Agreed. Well, Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been amazing. Where can people go to find out more about you if they want to look you up? Sure. Probably the best place is the website, kerncountydui.com, K-E-R-N, county, C-O-U-N-T-Y, D-U-Y.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again. We'd love having you. Thanks. Well, if you found today's episode helpful, we hope that you will share it with everyone in your circle. And if you'd like to read notes about today's podcast, you can do that on www.scorpion.co, that's .co, without the end. Thank you all for joining us and we will see you next time.